The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. After he had fed the people, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and proceed him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After doing so, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already a few miles offshore, was being tossed about by the waves, for the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. At once, Jesus spoke to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him in reply, Lord, if it is you, come to me. Command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? After they got into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat did him homage, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Back in Advent, I mentioned that I wanted to do a sort of back-to-basics approach and some of my homilies to the course of the year. And one of the sections that I've been wanting to do, basically the entire reason I began the back-to-basics thing in the first place, was to be able to talk about the Mass and to be able to go through what we do and why we do what we do here uh, in the Holy Mass each week. Because there are so many things that can easily be somewhat glossed over. So I'm going to do that next week. <laughs> this week, we get a nice primer and preparation for that. And I say that because in the life of the church, every single one of us is invited and encouraged and indeed required by the Lord to walk on two paths in the life of prayer. One path is communal. And this is what we do here. It's where we come and we offer our communal worship. Where we come together as a family, as the body of Christ, and we worship and adore our Lord. Whenever we come in the communal worship, it recognizes that it necessarily strips us of our personal preferences. Because we come here and we have worship that involves each and all of us. And if all of us got our way, what a mess the Mass would be. Because we would have a whole mix of all kinds of things. Mass would be too long and too short simultaneously. We would have all sorts of different types of music. We'd have all different types of languages. We'd have all different types of everything. And so necessarily the church comes and strips us of our personal preference for the good of the community. And we come and we pray. In addition to that common and communal prayer, each of us is required by our Lord to have a personal life of prayer. Wherein we can actually speak to our Lord, not just as a member of a larger body, but specifically as an individual. So we can speak to God heart to heart, one to another, the lover and the beloved. And so we have this life of prayer that we're called to enter into. 
Not just to content ourselves with being able to come into worship on Sunday, but to know the Lord Jesus in a deeper and more profound way than we normally would be permitted just simply in a larger setting. And we have the scriptures that encourage us in that today. And indeed, they show us how to do it and why to do it. In the gospel, we see that our Lord, he goes off, and at the end of a long day, he, he had arrived on the shore, and then presumably he was looking for a place of rest. And he arrives on shore, and there's this huge crowd of people waiting for him to come and to do healings and teachings and all kinds of things. And so he sets himself aside, and he says, okay. He looks upon a crowd as, a, as sheep without a shepherd, and he feeds them. Feeds them with his word, feeds them with his teachings. And then sending off the disciples, he himself goes up alone to the top of the mountain, and there he goes to pray. It should strike us that Jesus needed to pray. I mean, Jesus is God, after all, right? We profess it every Sunday. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. If Jesus is God, why does he need to take a break to talk to God? Really? It's a good question to ask. It would seem that he could just have a, a continuous dialogue and he could just go and do all of his work and, and, and continuously be out doing, doing, doing. But the Lord shows us the importance of being able to set aside time to speak with the Lord one on one. For him to be able to commune with the Father and to commune with the Holy Spirit. To be able to love and be loved. To lift up one's heart. To lift up one's prayers, one's desires for those around them, even for oneself. And to be with the Lord. And if Jesus, who is the second person the Blessed Trinity needed to pray, you and I do as well. And so the Lord bids us to make sure that we spend our time in prayer. And as a model, as an example for it, we have the prophet Elijah in the first reading today. Elijah the prophet, where we get to today, comes at the end of a rather turbulent experience in his recent days. Elijah was the one who had gone up onto the top of the mountain and they had the 400 prophets of Baal who claimed that they were the true religion, that Baal was the true God. The God of Israel was, he was a false God. And this false religion had almost taken over all of Israel, even to the queen herself, bowing down before false gods. And so Elijah challenges them. He says, how about we first, both of us, set up an altar with a sacrifice on it. I'll call upon my God, you call upon yours, and we'll see which one answers. And so the 400 prophets of Baal, they go out and they cry and they weep and they pray and they dance and they sing and all kinds of other strange things uh, that was part of their rituals of calling upon their God. And all they got was nothing. Absolutely nothing happened at 400 prophets beckoning. And Elijah mocked them a little bit because sometimes the, the prophets get a little sassy. He said, hey, you know, your God, he's a, he's a big God. He's a tired God. Maybe, maybe he's, taking a, he's taking a nap. You should tell him a little louder. You should cry out a little louder, huh? And yet, nothing. And after all of this crying and weeping and moaning and dancing and all of these other things... Elijah goes and humbly prays before the Lord at his altar. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes the whole altar itself. Just like that. 
The whole thing is gone. The Lord consumes it all. And in response, Elijah, who now had the whole people of Israel, basically a whole nation had gathered around to watch to see which God is our God. He shows that the God of Israel, our God, is the true God. And the false prophets needed to be slain. So he himself took them down to the river and killed 400 prophets. Now the queen had those 400 prophets in her care. There were basically 400 of her employees. And so anybody, if you take 400 of their employees that continue to give them power and honor and dignity and tell you whatever you want, if you go and you kill them, you're going to be a little upset, right? And such was the case with Elijah. She told Elijah, if by the end of the day I don't do to you what you did to them, let it happen to me. Basically, if you're not dead by the end of the day, I better be. Because that's the only way it's not going to happen. So Elijah, run. (laughs) And he ran. He ran off into the desert, and there he was sustained for a brief time by the Lord, by this great gift, a, a, a loaf of bread and some drink, because the Lord woke him up with the gift of an angel, bearing these gifts, and said, Eat and drink, the journey is long. And eating and drinking, he journeyed, and the journey was long, and he winds up at the end in a mountain. And that's where we pick up the story today. But Elijah climbs up this mountain, and he climbs into a cave. Elijah is basically having the worst day of his life. He proved that God was God, but at the same time, it was at his own peril. He himself would soon taste death. He knew it. He knew the queen was going to come kill him. And so he hid in the cave, and he prayed. From the earliest days of the church, the church fathers have often encouraged us to be able to look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. To be able to put on our Jesus glasses as we read the Old Testament to see things in a new light, in a new way. Where sometimes something that was in the Old Testament, it kind of made sense. But whenever we see it through the life of Christ, whenever we see it with the eyes of Christian faith, it changes the whole meaning of it. And this passage of Elijah in the cave is exactly that. Elijah in the cave could be just a simple place of, of safety and repose. But the church fathers recognize that the cave is the wounds of Jesus. And most especially, the heart of Jesus. Our Lord, whenever he died upon the cross, all of his bones were perfectly intact. So normally they would break the bones, uh, break the legs, to make sure that a man had died, to be able to kill him quickly. But seeing that he had already died, to fulfill the prophecy, they pierced him with a lance instead, and it pierced his heart. And that open heart is a place where we can find rest. That open heart of Jesus is where the Lord bids us come. When all around the world is seeking to attack you, when you seem like all is lost, when the things are the worst they can possibly be, when everything around us is hopeless, useless, pointless, come to the cave. Come to the heart of Jesus. And as we come to the heart of Jesus, and we persevere, and we stay in the heart of Jesus, and we stay in that place of prayer and safety and protection, interesting things happen. Now this here basically teaches us what the life of prayer really often is like. That whenever we come to pray, more often than not, at least for myself, I I speak for myself here, 
Whenever we come to pray, we want the Lord to show us some sign that he hears us, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the Lord in prayer, whether it's discernment, whether I was in the seminary, you know, am I called to be a priest or not? Give me, give me some help. Give me one way or the other. Show me something. And even, even now as a priest, is this your will or not, Lord? Do we do this or do we do this? Show me something. Do something, Lord. And we look for signs. It's natural. We're physical beings. We need signs. We long for signs to be able to have some clarity and certainty whenever we follow our Lord. But the Lord shows us in Elijah that the signs don't always come. And this is supposed to be an encouragement to us in our prayer. Not a discouragement, an encouragement in our prayer. Because we look in Elijah, he goes and he, he knows that the, the, the wind is coming and is breaking the rocks. Earthquakes come and shake the mountain. The fire and the rains and all of these things, they come. And in all of these noises, all of these big signs where one would expect God to be, the Lord was not in it. And then, in a still, quiet whisper, Elijah covers his face and he goes outside to meet the Lord because he knows that that is the Lord. When we go to prayer, although we may often desire fantastic things to take place, we may desire to see earthquakes and winds and storms and all various things for God to show himself to us. But more often than not, the Lord bids us not to wait for those things, but to persist and persevere until after they are gone. And then, in the quiet of our prayer, in the silence, He speaks. He reveals His will. He shows us what it is that He desires of us. And He grants us the strength to follow through with it. It's interesting that in the Old Testament... As it shows, as, as it indicates that Elijah, he covered his face to go out to meet the Lord. This is because earlier in the, in the I think it was in the, uh, the earlier part of the, New, of the Old Testament, the, somewhere in Deuteronomy or something, um, that no one could look upon the Lord and live. No one could see the face of God and live. And so there was this understanding that if you saw the Lord, you covered your face. That's why so often through the scriptures, anytime there was a revelation, if an angel appeared, they immediately fall face down on the ground or they cover their face. They do something because I don't want to die. That's basically what they're saying. <laughs> I would like to live after this experience of a, of a heavenly being. And Elijah does the same. He has just escaped death, so he's not about to walk out there without his face covered and, and die right there on the spot. So he covers, covers his face to go in to meet the Lord. To go to meet our God in the silence, in the quiet. But an interesting thing takes place with the transition from the Old Testament into the life of Christ in the New Testament times is that in the Old Testament, if you looked upon the face of the Lord, you would die. In the New Testament, our gospel shows us today, if we don't look upon the face of our Lord, we cannot live. It goes from we can't see him to we must. We must look upon our God because Jesus took on flesh for that very reason. For us to be able to see him face to face. Peter's in the boat. And of course they're all freaked out. Because how often do we see somebody walking to us on the water? And in the fear of his heart. He worries. They've got the storm all around. And he's got this ghost presumably walking to him on the sea. And he cries out to the Lord. And he recognizes that it is the Lord. The Lord bids them be in peace. 
And Peter, fool that he is, crazy that he often does, he says incredible things. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, Jesus, a few minutes later, would say, oh, you of little faith. But I say anyone that thinks they can walk on water has a good bit more faith than I ever would ever think to have. And so Peter, when the Lord says, come, he steps out of the boat. And I'm sure the other disciples were like, watch him sink, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Peter thinks he can walk on water. He thinks he's Jesus, huh? And yet he was. He goes out. And a normal man, just like every single one of us, walked on water. Because he was looking directly at Jesus. And it's only when he doesn't look at Jesus, when he starts to pay attention more to the waves and the storm all and the winds all around him, then he sinks. And as soon as he begins to sink, he recognizes and he turns back to Christ. Lord, save me. And he does. The Lord invites us to come to him and to rest in his heart. To be able to rest, it's an image, of course, to rest in the heart of Jesus. To come to Jesus and to pray. To look at Jesus and continuously keep him before our eyes. That's why we as Catholics, we have so many visible signs and things. Other people content themselves with, with simply reading the scriptures, and indeed we should, we must read the scriptures to see the life of Christ, to look upon Jesus. But as Catholics, we have a wonderful gift of having visible signs, crucifixes, in our church, in our homes, in our halls, in our rooms, places where we can continually look to Christ, small images and large all around us, in the public square and in the private, where we can look upon Jesus. And remember, in the quiet or in the storm, that our Lord is with us. What a gift. What a gift to know that our God is always here. And so he bids us to come and to draw close to him. To rest in his heart. To find peace. To find consolation. To enjoy the silence. And to wait for him to speak.